Hey there, fashionable podcast listener. To celebrate our fifth year of recording from RailsConf, we've printed a small batch of t-shirts for the bike shed, featuring new custom artwork and available in both straight and fitted cuts. Pre-orders for these shirts are open from now until Thursday, April 20th, and can be picked up directly at RailsConf. We won't be bringing any extras with us, but we promise these will be available again in the future. So please only order if you're attending the conference yourself. Otherwise, how will we get them to you? To check them out, head over to tbot.io slash bike shop. That's T-B-O-T dot I-O slash bike shop and get yours today. Thanks for listening. And we can't wait to see you at the conference. <sighs> yeah, too bad none of that can stay in the show. Yeah. <laughs> that should just be that, Tom. That should be the intro is me saying too bad none of that can stay in the show. And then we start the show. <laughs> Uh, hi, Sean. Hi, Derek. How's it going? It's going all right. How are you? I have a complaint. I have a gripe. Are you I'd like to about listen again. Yes, I'm definitely going to complain about listen again. How did I know? <laughs> well, because I think maybe since the last time we talked, a bot closed the listen issue, to which I said, "Hey, Sean, can we reopen this? Because it's locked, so nobody right. can comment on it. So it looks like it's stale." But anyway, that got reopened. And so, like, also, since we last talked about this listen issue, I was talking to another developer who was complaining about how unstable their OS 10 install had been and, like, blaming their upgrade to Mac OS, whatever is the most recent version. OS Vance Pants. Yeah. And I was like, well, what's happening? And they were like, well, all of a sudden, I just, like, can't open a new Chrome tab. I'm like, oh, Hmm. Okay. And they're like, yeah. And I like, sometimes I just can't, I can't launch apps. Like nothing happens. Like I try to launch a Chrome tab and I get like the little sad tab thing. And they're like, and the other day I tried to open the inspector and like nothing happened. And I was like, oh, it sounds like a Chrome problem or whatever. We're like, yeah, okay. Okay. And then started talking about like, oh, other apps are having problems. And sometimes I can't open new tabs in my terminal. And I was like, oh, I know what this is. I was like, you're working on a rails five app. They're like, yeah. I was like, your system's out of processes. Like, it cannot open any more processes because Rails 5 is listening for file changes and something doesn't get cleaned up. I was like, I don't fully understand what's happening here, but I guarantee that's what it is. If you open up Activity Monitor and you kill FS Events D and give it a few seconds, everything will return to normal. Kind of some things. Like, I seem to have to quit out of Tmux entirely and then come back in in order for Tmux to recover from I'm that. Just, but, I'm not arguing that Listen doesn't have issues and that this isn't bad. Mm-hmm. But just when this stuff starts happening... Are people's first response not seriously just to try rebooting the computer? Well, it is, but that's also, like, it's really disruptive to have to... We're spoiled now. Like, rebooting used to be a thing that everybody did at least once a day, right? And, like, I shut down... I used to shut down my computer all the time, not because I felt like I needed to shut it down, but, like, why not? Because then I get a fresh start, Mm. right? But I don't do that anymore, and, like, I have 25 tabs open... And I want those to stay, and that can kind of you know, work. And you, I have like you know context. Chrome saves those if you if you close sometimes, and then so does Safari and, and yes. Firefox, and that's nice. And but like uh, an edge, Tmux. Like I'm not running Tmux and remotely. Opera. I'm running T. I'm running Tmux like on my own system where I have like these sessions open. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. T- right. Like yeah, Tmux. Just, sure. And like it's just a thing. I don't want to have to. I just don't want to reboot. Right. <laughs> I will say this: Mac is really crappy at rebooting. Like. While I was just turning my computer on so that we could do this, because I had unplugged it for a day or two, and so the battery was completely dead, so it had fully shut down. And it took, like, three and a half minutes to actually, like, get to a point where I could open Skype. Maybe three <laughs> and a half minutes is a bit of a 
Mine's not too bad. Exaggeration, but no. It, 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 so like you see the desktop reasonably fast, but it's not actually ready. It's like a picture it's, of it's a picture yeah. of your desktop. It's a good yeah. minute to a minute and a half <laughs> after that before it's usable. And I don't know. Windows has spoiled me on that lately because Windows eight and then again in Windows ten they really really focused on boot time. Yeah, and like it paid huge dividends. When I switched to OS ten, like back, I don't know. You mean when... like OS ten, like from OS nine? No, when I switched from Windows something to OS ten, oh, I think okay, it was XP okay. or whatever. It was in the age of uh, when right. the, when mean, they first Windows made the switch 8, to Intel. Windows was shit right. at boot as well, and like it couldn't like Windows couldn't wake up from sleep without crashing. Windows like it just could. So I was like, this yeah. is, and now maybe it's gone the other way. Anyway, my point was more that like. It's not that it's a hassle to have to do this. It's more that it's unreasonable to even like the people I were talk I was talking to were like didn't even cross their mind that the issue was Rails. Right? So, like, so my, <laughs> my response was not to like oh but this is fine because because you just re- <laughs> my I was I was saying that in response to you recommending oh yeah you just go in and kill fs stats d, d as yeah. opposed to just saying have you tried rebooting your computer it's certainly quicker to kill fs event d fs events d whatever it is but anyway it just seems like that can't ship in five point one like if it's not fixed in five point one listen needs to be removed. Because it doesn't look like a Rails... It's not a Rails bug. It craps out your entire system. <laughs> like, like, it's just totally perplexing. And we have people blaming Mac OS X or Chrome or whatever the case may be. And I'm seeing lots of stuff on Twitter where like people are complaining, like, such and such app is awful for me now. And I'm always like, are they a Rails developer? Like... <laughs> 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 See what's what's weird? Like I, I've never personally run into these problems. Do you run a Rails five app every day? Yes, hmm. multiple. Well, not right at this exact moment, but when I'm working and not on parental leave, yes. I can't figure out what it is that causes it. Sometimes it happens like multiple times a day, but a lot of times it's like once every day or every other day. I generally leave a server open. Maybe it's edits or something to the files. Or I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, what I do know is that actually just tracking file changes is hard. Yes, I understand. I am totally sympathetic to the fact that this is a hard problem to solve. And like the other, the other really unfortunate part that makes this really a shame is that the issue that covers it is locked, and rightfully so. <laughs> At least at the time that it was locked, because the conversation was pretty hostile. I could probably unlock it. It's been I, like, what, a year now? I think it should be unlocked and possibly like delete some of the offensive comments if that's what somebody wants to do. I but, like, don't like deleting comments unless they get really bad. I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and unlock this. It's been Sweet. a year. Because I was on the verge, like, when, after that conversation with somebody, I was on the verge of opening a new issue that was like, remove, listen from the gem file. And I was like, this is better as a pull request. So I might just, I, the problem is like, it's not the easiest pull request to make because there's tests and things like that that I need to go through and understand what they're testing. And because I did look at it, like, should I just submit this as a pull request? I don't think it would get merged, but like, just as a way to kind of be like, hi, uh, this thing over here. And and maybe it, like you say, you don't get it very often, and it's it just strikes me as the kind uh, no, of thing I that would like. I didn't say I don't get it very often. I said I've literally never personally experienced it. Wow. And so that that's what I was thinking the other day as I was like, if this happened to DHH. It would be gone in a second. Right. So there must be something that's it's not happening to him for some reason. And I don't know why. Anyway, yeah. I'd like to see that problem get fixed. Somebody out there who knows a lot about cross-platform or specifically OS X watching for file changes, 
please. I think part of it is, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the maintainer of Listen is primarily a Linux user. Yes, he says that in the thread where he explains that he's doing the best that he can. Yeah, um, and so it, I may, think it may not even be Listen. It may be the gem that, like, I think it's RBFS event or something like that that Listen uses on OS X or something. So, Right, I mean, I think that's just the biggest problem is that, like, I honestly doubt there's anybody actively working on fixing it right. for, for Mac users. Right. It, it really just needs somebody who can, like, dig into the issue and is on a Mac and cares about fixing it to spend a week on it. The real tragedy of that issue is the people who seemed to know what they were talking about enough in that issue, like, they seemed particularly motivated and to have the knowledge to fix it together. And because the situation got... Because that one person was particularly, like hostile that's not going to happen right which is unfortunate yeah because they certainly had a lot of opinions on what was wrong with whatever listen or rbfs event was doing so maybe they knew what <laughs> was supposed to happen and so like part of me wants to like unlock the issue and then ping them and be like hey do you have constr-? but i don't want to like invite them back yeah, to that thread. No, don't don't <laughs> Now that Sean's I unlocked not, it, let me... <laughs> I will not hesitate to lock this issue again. <laughs> let me put it this way. The way this gets cl- this issue gets closed is we fix whatever is wrong and listen. It's not we remove listen? No. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> and, like, no, it's, you don't fix a bug. Like The switch to the evented watcher does solve a legitimate problem, especially for projects which have a large number of files in development mode. There's a bug there. We should fix the bug. Mm-hmm. I don't see that the fix is just revert this change because it affects some people some of the time on one operating system. Yeah, but it affects me, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> and while that does increase the weight it has. <laughs> I right. mean, there could maybe be an interim pull request that's done. Necessary. You know, like like we've said, it's it was the tone of the way people were going about it. Right. All right, that's enough about listen. I just wanted to gripe again, so I have griped. No, it's good. What else is going on? So, you know, I've been thinking about languages lately. Specifically, all of the languages that are, like, in the forefront lately, with the exception of Elixir. One thing that I've noticed is nobody's making interpreted languages anymore, which I find interesting. Nobody is making interpreted languages anymore. Like, you look at Go, you look at Rust, you look at Swift. Okay. Right, they they all compile down to native binaries. I mean, anything that runs on the JVM would not compile down to a native binary, right? They're compiling to bytecode. Sure, JVM right. bytecode. Well, and, and so, so this is your fast forwarding in the discussion I wanted to have. <laughs> then I started thinking about so why is why is Ruby interpreted in the first place? And what to, and, and interestingly, Java is like this weird middle ground of like it's both compiled but also interpreted. Because Java, the language is compiled, but the J- but JVM bytecode is interpreted, so... Right. I mean, how would that be different than Elixir? Because Elixir is also compiled, but ultimately interpreted... To, to bytecode that's interpreted by a VM. Right. So it's they're both in the same... Same boat. Same boat. Okay. Basically, I'm not sure that there's real benefits to an interpreted language in 2017. Yeah, I mean, I, I just vaguely remember the conversations around Java when Java came out about, like, the reason why Interpreted was awesome there was write once, run everywhere, and it, it never Right, and, and I think that, and that's probably why Ruby did it, right? Because the thing that, when I started thinking about this, that came to mind is, like, what changed is the existence of LLVM. Hmm, okay, right. Which is like a compiler toolkit, basically. 
Right. Like pre-LLVM, it was incredibly difficult to write a compiler that could emit machine code for a large number of backends. LLVM certainly isn't write once run everywhere. It's write once run most places. <laughs> if you care about specifically certain embedded platforms, it will not suit your needs yet. But certainly for all the places that Ruby can run, uh, well, theoretically Ruby can run anywhere because MRI is written in C. And so in, in theory, Ruby can run anywhere that a C compiler can support, assuming it's on a platform that supports an allocator, which actually platforms that don't have an allocator and platforms that aren't supported by LLVM are probably mostly overlapping. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I, I was trying to think through, and I'm not like super knowledgeable about every language, especially languages that are like in the 80s to 90s era, but I, I struggled to think of any language that, w- that was compiled and predated LLVM. LLVM first coming into existence in 2003. The only language I could come up with was Haskell, which mm-hmm. built you know, its own intermediate language called C++. <laughs> okay. Uh, which is what it emitted and then, and then was compiled by a C++ compiler. And everything else seems to like basically just hack on GCC to emit its final machine code. So with the exception of the JVM, which we already mentioned, and also any .NET language, right? Those are similarly compiling down to Microsoft Instruction Language, MSIL, whatever that stands for. And then which gets interpreted by the... C-sharp right? doesn't predate LLVM. Right. But I'm just, I thought you were saying that that was... Right. No, you, it does... <laughs> hold on, hold on. Does C-sharp actually compile to bytecode? I thought... Because I thought it compiled to machine code and just dynamically linked the runtime. I thought all of the .NET languages compiled down to MSIL. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised, but... Microsoft Intermediary Language is a language used by the output of a number of compilers, C-sharp, VB, .NET, it's not a compiler, okay, and so forth. The IL-DASM, Intermediate Language Disassembler Program that ships with .NET Framework, allows the user to see the MSIL code. Yeah, but they're still compiling machine code. That's, that's, that's just their intermediate it's language. It's an intermediate they, step, yeah. Probably to allow interop between those languages. Well, and also because you want to have an intermediate representation for your compiler. Okay. I've never built a compiler, so I'll take your word for it. <laughs> you you want to do it in passes. Just like how you don't want to have your 100-line function in Ruby, you don't want to go straight from source code to machine code in a compiler. Okay, you that passes. makes sense. That makes sense. IRs are usually represented in binary, and then sometimes, like um, LLVM IR, there's a textual representation that you can write. It, that's not how it works. When you're, when you're targeting LLVM, right, what you output is the LLVM intermediate representation, or LLVM IR, and there is a textual representation of that, which is useful for debugging purposes. But the way you interop with LLVM is not write to a text file and then pass that to LLVM IR. The IR has a binary representation. So the, the thesis is, or the, the, the hypothesis is, the reason why we don't see very many interpreted languages is because it's now easier than ever to build languages that compile to machine code. Right. There's huge drawbacks to having an interpreted language. And I don't know that there are a lot of upsides. What are the drawbacks to having an interpreted language? Well, so a better question is what are the upsides to having a compiler? Because the drawbacks of an interpreted language are that you cannot have the upsides of a compiler, or if you do have those upsides, they have to be done at runtime when you execute the program, which usually leads to a large boot time. You know, the biggest one being parsing and then optimizing the code. Two things that the that a compiler can just do upfront. Parsing maybe isn't a huge cost 
sometimes depending on how much code you have. But you can do lots of really interesting optimization passes on codes. Maybe less in Ruby than you could in other languages, but optimizers are cool. (laughs) (laughs) You know, especially you get into into de-optimizing compilers, which is a big thing in Ruby, right? So like, I know that's a straw man, but kind of a contrived example is let's say you have two plus three in your source code, right? Mm -hmm. So you want to have that ideally optimized down to just the literal five. But then, of course, you also have to handle in Ruby the case that somebody can just at runtime go change the definition manager plus. Right. So you have to have a system in place that this is optimized to five, but with a trigger somewhere that, hey, if anybody's ever changed the definition manager plus, please undo this optimization. And here's the original unoptimized version of that code, which then can get re-optimized and all right. that's cool. You can do that at runtime, but you can also do a lot of that compile time. Like you can also you can do that initial optimization pass just mm-hmm. when you build the program. And then not have to have your user waiting on your script to run on doing that optimization pass. And that leads to like the JVM does less optimization up front than it could. Because mm-hmm. that slow JVM boot time is just loading all of those class files for the standard library into memory. And then doing optimization passes on them. And then deciding, okay, now we're out of time. So I'm going to stop doing optimization passes. And then periodically while it's running your code, it will stop executing your code because it's like, oh, this code's a hot path. I'm going to do more optimization on this code. Right. Which just all of that could be done ahead of time. Right. At a trade-off for compile time. At a trade-off for compile time, yes. Right. And that's why, right, you have debug and release builds in compiled yep. languages where debug builds as quickly as an interpreted language could run, theoretically. Right. And then release build. Because you don't care how long it... I mean, you do care how long your deploys take, but... You're willing to wait a lot longer for your deploys. Yes. And do, do you think that... So we talked about LLVM as a potential reason why people are building more compiled to machine code languages. Do you think that just the overall speed of computers, <laughs> like development computers, is, are, is helping? Like that compile times are not as big of an issue or... I mean, I, I think that compilers are doing more than they used to. Certainly, that was that was my next thing. Is like, do you think it's the the other possibility that I was thinking about is that people have just, and I don't know if this is like one caused the other or one came and then the other was a realized benefit of just like people started writing more compiled languages, realizing they could do more with compilers, the computer could do more for them because the computer was faster, and also they could get these cool features that compilers didn't used to do that now they can do. I would li- I would like to just. You say you say this phrase so nonchalantly. Compile times aren't really an issue anymore. Well, no, they definitely are. <laughs> so I've had C plus plus code uh, code bases that take <laughs> tens of hours to build. Yeah. In debug mode. Yes, this is true. This I should not say that, but certainly they can do more in the time that they're allotted now than they could t- ten years ago. Sure. Yes. Or five years. That ago. That is also even. true. Well, maybe not five years ago. Ten years ago, yeah. Maybe not five years ago, but. <laughs> I don't know that that can really contribute to the interpreted versus compiled quote-unquote war simply because the most naive possible compiler, which simply emits machine code, Mm -hmm. really kind of has to do the maybe slightly more work than a bytecode interpreter or a source code interpreter does. But more or less, it has to do the same amount of work that MRI has to do when it parses and executes your file. Yeah, right. You know, I, I would say the difference, if you were to write the most naive possible compiler, I would say the difference in terms of the work it has to do is pretty minimal. So we're seeing more compiled languages, and those compiled languages are doing more interesting things. And that is also potentially 
contributing to like this virtuous cycle of like it's easier than ever to build compiled languages compiled languages are doing cooler things now we have more compiled <laughs> languages right is that yeah okay i guess my biggest question my bigger question was you're probably a person who who can think of some some that i couldn't think of can you think of any languages that were released before 2003 that compiled the machine code that weren't c or c plus I mean, all i knew was c or c plus plus and you know languages that predate C and C plus plus, obviously. Right. Uh, no. <laughs> Me neither. I'm sure there 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 must be at least one. I, I I guess Objective C actually. Right. I guess I was not aware of that. Certainly in 2003. When did Objective C come out? Actually. I think it's older than people 1984. Yeah. yeah. And Objective C sort of gets to cheat since they are a superset of C. So they get to reuse a lot of the infrastructure that was built by C. Yeah. I don't know if they did, but... So there's lots of languages that have implementations that are compiled or interpreted that we've oh, yeah? probably written, uh, like Pascal and Basic. Yeah. Stuff like that. Yeah. But Turbo Pascal, I don't even know what that is. I just remember I just remember seeing it. <laughs> Turbo, Turbo Pascal was the version of Pascal that I used. <laughs> So I mean, I guess there were there were things. Um, yeah, those do, those both did exist. That is true. But we seem to have like a uh, what's the term? A Cambrian explosion. Sure. <laughs> sure. Of, of you languages. Live in Cambridge, right? <laughs> uh, so so like Cambrian explosion. Have you heard the term before? I have heard the term, but I also just find it funny that you would use that term because you live in cambridge don't you no i don't longer live in i've never lived in cambridge i used to live in somerville but i no longer live somerville's next to cambridge ah. don't, don't don't insult me with this cambridge garbage uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway sorry continue. okay so people that aren't familiar with the term it's like basically at some point in the history of our fossil record there's all of a sudden this like oh my goodness there's way more fossils that are way more diverse than that's called the cambrian explosion for some reason so like we kind of have languages and now I guess what you're saying is they're not more diverse. They, in some, well, along this one axis, axes, axis, it is not more diverse. In that they're backed by LLVM? Right. Or compiled, specifically compiled to machine code. Oh, sure. Right. On that one axis, what we're seeing today is not. Oh, Crystal was the other one that I was thinking about just on the list of like languages that are LLVM backed and compiled to machine code. Hmm. Yeah. Paul just did a little uh, lunch and learn on Crystal here today. Yeah, it's a neat looking little language. Yeah, it looks cool. Uh, I am keeping an eye on it till they get to 1.0. <laughs> like, I like writing Ruby, and it looks a lot like Ruby and has some other advantages. And, like, certainly he showed some of the safety features of it, and certainly it's not anywhere near what Rust or Haskell or anything like that can do. Yeah, it's it's much more targeting, like, let's take on Ruby. <laughs> right, and it's a, it's a step up from there, and it's a big step up, but you can certainly fool the compiler pretty easily without trying right he particularly showed some stuff around arrays where it can't infer the types as well as you would like it to we also have that problem in rust oh okay <laughs> and, and most languages that okay yeah array new is a thing that you can very rarely infer the type from <laughs> well not even necessarily that i can't remember the exact thing he was i mean we did go over new arrays and then how you like i think in if you just use the array literal in Crystal, I think you have to, if you just have an empty array literal, I think you have to tell it what it's going to be an array of. I'm not entirely sure. Anyway, podcast not about Crystal because I've written about three lines of Crystal, so. Anyway, I, I just thought it was an interesting, like, 
thing that's been happening. Yeah. Is Go Back by all of them? I think it is. <laughs> I don't know. Have you seen... Oh, we could talk about that, I guess. Have you seen the... Um... The tweet no go tweet. is not backed by LLVM. Okay. There is an LLVM implementation of Go. Sorry, go ahead. So on Twitter this tweet's been going around. And this tweet's not that great. Because it doesn't <laughs> tell me who actually said the thing. But it's of an image, and the image is somebody's slide. And the slide says teaching at the top. And it says the key point here is our programmers are Googlers. They're not researchers. They're typically fairly young, fresh out of school, probably learned Java, maybe learned C or C++, probably learned Python. They're not capable of understanding a brilliant language, but we want to use them to build good software. So the language that we give them has to be easy for them to understand and easy to adopt. And then I suppose that that quote, if if it's not in quotes, but it's attributed to Rob Pike, who... It is Rob Pike. Who created Go. Yeah, it was... From a talk where he introduced Go. Okay. And there's so much cringeworthy in there. Like, not capable of understanding a brilliant language. Like, oh boy. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, I think I agree with what he was, not necessarily the point he was trying to make, but like the underlying point that that point has to make, if that makes sense. um, Like, I agree that, that you shouldn't just assume that everybody is clever or write code that people need to be clever to understand because even clever people don't like figuring out that code right if i were going to parse this favorably i would say that the point he was trying to make was that like you could spend all day writing like the perfect language that like language nerds right people who are into languages would think is really awesome but that doesn't optimize for productivity of the programmers right Instead, sure. the Neither does including null, but you know. <laughs> Instead, the you know he kind of weighed it down a little bit with some <laughs> some judgments there that probably didn't need to be in there. Anyway, yeah, he also followed that up a few years later with um, I don't remember the exact wording, but he basically went off on how nobody should be allowed to touch a compiler if they don't have a journeyman's understanding of floating point or something like that. <laughs> yeah, I, I I mean it's. <clears throat> and it wasn't it wasn't like you should understand that rounding errors are a thing it was like you should understand this interaction between negative zero and not a number i certainly don't understand that but i also wouldn't touch a compiler so hey you know i guess guess <laughs> no, i guess no, no, not, right not to touch a compiler i mean be allowed to use a compiler oh well i certainly use some compilers <laughs> right he was saying he, he was saying this should be the bar to be a, to be a programmer uh well, in a very hmm. exclusionary way. Yeah, I'm not fond of of his statements in general. Is the point I'm trying to right that I'm trying to make. And I think there are ways. Like, I try to do better today at like trying to take people re- reading things that people say and trying to parse them in more favorably way because I want to give people the benefit of the doubt. But like when yeah. there's when there's a pattern of behavior, it's certainly harder to ignore. Or when you are given ample opportunity to correct yourself. And just soldier forward. Yeah. Even when it seems very likely that you understand that you've made a misstep. (laughs) Okay. That ends our discussion on teaching Go, I guess. (laughs) Let's uh, take a break for a moment and talk about this week's sponsor. SparkPost is the robust cloud API for apps and websites to send and receive email. 
Built on AWS, it is the world's most reliable and fastest-growing cloud email service provider, with offerings that range from free self-service startup accounts to sophisticated enterprise support and services. With developer-friendly enterprise-grade features using SMTP or combined with your language of choice, SparkPost's email REST API makes it easy to embed transactional email and analytics into any app or workflow. SparkPost's high-performance email infrastructure is the only cloud auto-scaling platform with burst rates backed by comprehensive uptime SLAs and is trusted by the world's biggest senders to deliver unmatched uptime and resilience. From its amazing REST APIs to industry-leading deliverability to deep analytics, there's never been a better way to build and send email. Try SparkPost and send 100,000 emails a month for free at pages.sparkpost.com slash bikeshed. Thank you to SparkPost for sponsoring this episode. So are we trying, do you think then that's it? We're done? We're done with interpreted languages? Probably. I mean, I don't know. Is, is there is there a benefit to interpreted languages anymore? Write once, run everywhere? Right. That's what, that, that's what that's I, I'm dream? pretty sure the only benefit that they ever provided was portability. But even then, you know, Java famously was write once, run everywhere, but then people would say write once, debug everywhere, right? Right. Because it wasn't. Well, there's that aspect of it, but it's also just it never actually provided that. And the extent that it did provide that is more or less provided by LLVM now. Okay. In terms of supported platforms. Not to say that LLVM is as portable as GCC is, but for the kinds of languages where this discussion is pertinent, it's effectively as portable. And interestingly, like we've talked about Chris Latner on this show before because he created Swift. He also mm-hmm. created LLVM. So he's had a pretty good little career. <laughs> yeah. He's and is now, now working on self-driving cars for Tesla or something like that, I think. Huh. I didn't know that. Um, Do we wrap up the thing good enough? We put a bow on that? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I don't know that there was a point. It was just an interesting, interesting train of thought I had been having for the last day or two that I thought you might find interesting. Yes. And be able to think of a language that proved me wrong, which I didn't think of Pascal, so we got that one. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, like, I certainly never wrote any of those languages for anything other than academic purposes. So, like, I had to really think hard. And of my, I don't know, sounds like such a weird word, of my contemporaries, I guess, the people who got into programming around the same time I did, it was like, you do C or C++, or you do, maybe you do VB. That was a thing that a lot of people right. did. And that was, was Java that, and Python. It, well, Java and Python didn't really come along until I was in college. But yeah, I mean, uh, but that's around the same time, Java. I think Java was fairly new when I was a freshman in college. And that's, or I was certainly the first class at UMass where they, uh, they cut us over to learning Java or teaching us in Java. I really wish, I don't know if we've talked about this before, but I really wish that they didn't do that. Not that they didn't they teach didn't us teach Java, Java, but they didn't teach a language. And that they taught like five yeah. languages, right? Because like I got to my senior year and I was in a network security class and they were like, I want you to write a buffer overflow. And I was like, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> I was like, I was like, I understand conceptually what a buffer overflow is, but I've never written C. So like, right. I don't have, I don't have any idea how to do that. And I was a senior in, in college at that point. And you know, I don't think it was a big deal. It didn't hurt me in the job market. And I ultimately figured it out enough to write a buffer overflow uh, <laughs> right? and get it executing. But just like being exposed to more languages rather than like 
we're going to teach you these concepts and we're always going to teach you them in Java because I feel like that gave me a really poor understanding of one language, right? Like, Sure. It I mean, I guess it's a question of like what the goal of the program is, right? Because if yeah. the goal is to teach you certain concepts, it doesn't matter what language it's in. Right. But I think I think that was hard to discern as somebody who was trying to learn at the time. Like, sure. am I learning the language or am I learning the concept? I think that's partially because most computer science programs are just really bad. I think that just nobody sat down and like said, like, like at no point, the thing I always laugh about it, at no point, like they taught us data structures, right? So like, here's what a linked list is, right? Right. And you're like, here's how you write a linked list. Like, cool. All right. That's what a linked list is. And then, you know, you move on, you're learning some other class and you're doing some other assignment for some other class. And you're like, you know what I need right now? I need a linked list. <laughs> and so I would just write a linked list. Like at no point did somebody like, this is what a linked list is. Most languages have these built in. Here's the reason why it's really important that you know how to build one yourself. Right. It was just like, oh, OK. Or also, here's why it's almost always the wrong data structure. <laughs> right. I don't know if I've ever used a linked list. <laughs> like, <laughs> but uh, I mean, you've written Haskell. Yeah, a little bit. Sure. <laughs> you used a linked list there. Yeah. It's the only um, data structure in Haskell. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I think that the, at least in my computer science education, which was good in hindsight, like at least a lot of the electives I took, like that network security class, a software engineering class, like those were all actually good classes but the base curriculum seemed more of like checking boxes and not really telling me at, at no point did anybody tell me like why it was important to know what a linked list was right i i just thought they were teaching me that i needed to know how to write a linked list well it's important <laughs> if you're so i think part of it is that people go into computer science programs because they want to be programmers that's entirely like i wanted my career to be a programmer so right I was and, so, like, and so knowing what a linked list is is probably not important for the majority of your career as a programmer. Like at some point it's a thing to learn and be like, oh, that's cool. Right. And I understand that colleges aren't trade schools, but to never have an official introduction to source control in any right. manner. But I think I think that's just like colleges are wrong for continuing to perpetuate the myth that like the way you become a programmer is to get a computer science degree. Companies are wrong for continuing to put that on their list of job requirements. But also it's just like there is a role for computer science program and there are places that like if you're going to go work at Mozilla on the Rust compiler, yeah, you should probably know what a linked list is and how to implement one. Right. And how operating systems work and all that other stuff and how, how to write a compiler. And, right. you know, those were all classes. Did I write a, did I ever write a compiler? Maybe I did write a compiler. I don't remember. Probably took a class on writing a compiler, yeah. <laughs> which didn't involve writing a compiler because writing an actual compiler is hard <laughs> and not a thing you can do in a, how long is a semester? Three months? Three, four months, something like that. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Literally, if the entire class was was a lab, I don't think you could actually write a decent compiler mm -hmm. in that long. Right. Yeah, and I certainly remember taking like the operating system class going like, there are a couple interesting things I'm learning here, but this is so much work. <laughs> like it was one of the higher work classes and being like, this is so much work and <laughs> I'm never going to use this, right? Like, I Right. Mean, but yeah, it, and it was just a matter of like, I wanted to be a computer programmer and the thing that lined up with doing that the most in college was computer science degree. And so I took that and never understood the difference between computer science and you are a programmer. I think and I, I, I didn't go to college, so I can't say like the time I used my degree. Mm -hmm. But having on my own acquired, I think, the majority of what they teach in a computer science program, probably the only time I've ever really used any 
classical knowledge was one time on Marshall Codex <laughs> where there was a hot path that was very identifiably a hot path. And the solution was a binary search, but it was just different enough from a traditional binary search that I couldn't use. Like, I think Lodash probably provides a binary search function. Mm-hmm. And it was just different. It was just different enough. Specifically, it needed the current and last element, and then had a special case for if it was comparing last element to null. That I had to write my own binary search. I think that's the only time I've ever actually used any traditional computer sciencey knowledge in my job in eleven years. Yeah, and I don't remember specific times, but I do remember the feeling of like, oh, I know this because I was taught it in college. I, I specifically remember having that feeling a few times and being, but I don't. I, I have a, I, I don't remember the specifics behind them, but certainly there's a lot more where it's like, I know this because I can vividly remember the project I worked on where we had this problem and I solved it after talking to Sean or somebody else about it. And they showed me this thing and here it is. I have the source code and it's right here. <laughs> right? Right. Like, like, I think you've made a very poignant remark earlier where it's just like, that degree would be so much more useful if there was a class, at least to become a programmer, if there was a class where it was intro to source control. Right. And maybe some of maybe now, I mean, I graduated college in 2002. So like maybe now that is, and I know there are also additional majors that cover like programming and I can't remember what some of the names of them are, but like hopefully programming, that'd be a good name. Uh, like information systems, like stuff like that. That's a, um, that's a really bad name. If it's a degree to become a programmer. I mean, I don't know. That's a thing that I know has programming classes in it. Sure. And the same thing, the same thing really is for like computer engineers, right? I just know a lot of computer engineering grads that became software programmers. Hmm. So I don't know if they got into it thinking that what they actually wanted to do was like build computer hardware. My roommate in college was a computer engineering grad. I thought you said you didn't go to college. I went to, uh, no, I got expelled from college. Oh, okay. And I lived in the dorms for a year. After you got expelled? No, <laughs> but uh, he works at a pizza place now as the hmm. counterpoint to computer engineering grads becoming uh, I don't think he actually graduated. I, I called him a computer engineering grad. He, I, he was a computer engineering no. student. I don't know that he graduated. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, I think this is probably true of a lot of college. Like, right. It's become this, um, boy, I could go on to this to- about this topic for a long time, but it's like, well, but that, that, that's what the boot camps are, right? They're bringing back the trade school, which is sort of necessary in this market. Yes. And I think, you know, not to pat Thoughtbot on its back, but ju- not just for that. But I do think like apprenticeship is a right. thing that needs to happen, right? Those boot camps need to be longer. Like, I don't know what it's like to apprentice as a carpenter, right? But I get the sense that it's longer than three to six months. Yeah. And six months, like I know Turing... Yeah, I, I, I always praise Turing just because they're a six-month program, and I do not think it is reasonable to go shorter than six months. And I know they've talked about it, right? So they do they do their four modules. They're six weeks with one week in between. And I know they have talked about adding a fifth, and the reason that they've never gone further than that is just for the price, given that the, major, the people who are going into it aren't the people who would otherwise be going to a college. It's people looking to make a change in their career. Mm-hmm. You can't reasonably expect people to go longer than six months without work because the real cost of the program isn't the tuition. It's the six months of unemployment. Right. And so I think the best I think the next thing, the next step is like to figure out how we get people from the boot camps to like because I see a lot of people from boot camps looking for jobs. Right. And it's junior developer positions and on the job training is the answer. Yeah. But doing a better job at just than just being like, well, we hired a junior developer. 
Right. Right. Like there has to be some sort of framework there. Maybe you treat it as an apprenticeship that's a little more formal and you have an assigned mentor and you rotate and you do meetings and you do, you know what I mean? And you have goals. I mean, that's what the apprenticeship like, is, right? It's what you guys have in lieu of junior developer roles right. because junior developer roles don't make as much sense in a consultancy. Right. And I would like to see other companies that are, you know, starving, frankly, to hire developers, like take this on more formally because they can do more than a three month apprenticeship that, that right. we can't necessarily do. Um, and I just want to see them take that on and, and call it an apprenticeship and like put some work into it, uh, into making it happen. It's so frustrating to hear companies that are like, oh, we don't hire juniors. We need seniors for this role. <laughs> oh, but it's so hard to find seniors. How do you think Make we them. as an industry go about <laughs> fixing that problem? Everybody's having a hard time finding seniors. It's been a talent shortage for the better part of a decade. Yeah. <laughs> it's everybody's job to fix this problem. And the the way you make more senior developers is to find junior developers and do a great job at mentoring them and giving them the environment to succeed. And then they become senior developers. And also sombreros. They have to have sombreros? To be senior developers. <laughs> That's the end of today's show. <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway, I think, uh, yeah, I could talk about colleges and things for a long time, so... We can do an entire episode on that. <laughs> Probably would have been a more coherent episode, too. No, it's fine. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 108. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any other episode, you can tweet us at underscore bikeshed, email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on the website. Thanks for listening to Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>